The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Baseball is back, and so are your favorite teams and players. Catch the best of the bigs all season on ESPN Plus with over 170 live MLB games featuring every star and every team in the league, even the New York Mets. Sign up now at ESPNPlus.com slash baseball. And it's NFL draft season. Be sure to check out the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny with my friend Lenny and also Mina Kimes for the latest insight and analysis with the draft just five days away. Wow. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The Low Post. Welcome into The Low Post podcast on a Friday morning on the East Coast. And we should start by acknowledging the tragic passing of Terrence Clark, who just wrapped his first season at Kentucky and was headed into the draft. Uh, He passed away in a car accident in L.A. And it's just unthinkable. And our condolences go out to his family, the Kentucky family, the Clutch Sports family, his family in Boston and friends in Boston where he where he grew up. I mean, just it's it's hard to wrap your mind about around it and um, just a horrible story. It's hard to move on from that, um, but we, we have to and we're going to talk about basketball today. We're specifically going to talk about the red hot New York Knicks and what is shaping up to be a wild playoff race in the Eastern Conference for seeds four to ten because we go down to ten now. And to help us deal with all of that, one of the people that I know has a pulse on all 30 teams in the NBA, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, ESPN's resident insider, expert, analytics guru, Seattle Kraken super fan, Kevin Pelton. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I admit, like the Houston Rockets, Oklahoma City Thunder pulse might not be as strong at the moment. That's that's a little weaker. You're not on the Poku Poku train. Uh, I mean, Poku is he's an experience. I don't. It's not mentally healthy for me because I'm trying to get in better shape and I don't weigh myself anymore, but I know about what I weigh. And then I look at him and he's seven feet, 190 pounds. And that's just like mathematically impossible. I don't understand it. I'm fat. I I need to watch. Poku is like watching some sort of like M. Night Shyamalan movie. You just never know what's going to happen. He could just trip over himself. He could throw the ball 15 feet into the stands. He could make some kind of play there. Like, whoa, I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. I'm all in on poke. I don't even know if he's going to be good. I'm just all in on the viewing experience. It is always entertaining, whether it's good or bad. And and it's been sometimes quite good in the last month or so here since he came back from the G League bubble. But uh, yeah, he's always doing something. I don't want to talk about the Thunder anymore. They're not trying to win. Um, So the East is interesting because it's shaping up. There are really four distinct tiers in the East as we head down. Really, we've got like 15 more games to go. One to three, that's a tier. Brooklyn, Philly, Milwaukee. No one's touching those three. They're in. Four to seven is, I think, the most interesting part of the conference. I mean, the top is the most interesting because those are the teams that can win the whole thing. But four to seven, that's Knicks, Hawks, Celtics, Heat, three-way tie in the loss column between Knicks, Hawks, Celtics. The Knicks, of course, have won eight in a row. New York is the greatest city in the world, is beside itself. I wish I were there to see it beside itself. It's incredible. The Heat are one game back in the loss column somehow at seventh. Then there's like a mini tier. I call it like the do we really care as long as the mellow ball's injured tier. Charlotte in Indiana. Not a lot of buzz for Charlotte in Indiana right now. And then 9, 10, 11, 12 is kind of a fourth tier. I'm sorry, 10, 11, 12 is kind of a fourth tier. Wizards, Bulls, Raptors. Wizards have moved into the last play in slot. They're playing pretty well. So I'll ask, let's start at the bottom just for fun. Who do you think gets 10th? Or who do you think gets 9th and 10th, I guess? Because Indiana's kind of been a little bit of danger, although they have an easy schedule of falling into that morass a little bit with Washington, Chicago, and Toronto. Who do you think gets those last two spots? And if you're Philly at one or Brooklyn at one are you is there a team you're like I kind of hope that team doesn't doesn't get in well first I want to acknowledge that you said there was not any buzz about the Hornets and make sure that we we called that one out I I think I don't think those teams are going to be scared of anyone that comes out of the play-in and you know one of the things that I wrote about in my mailbag last weekend is you know this idea that oh if you get into 10 everybody's got a chance now 
it's a little overstated because it's a way harder path if you have to win two games as opposed to winning one, potentially, if you're in the eight or nine. It doesn't feel seven, that way, though. That's, that's the weird thing, because once you win one, all of a sudden it's like you're in game seven. It's, 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 I understand what you're saying statistically, like if you simulated it a million times, it's really hard to win two versus teams who have to win one. It just doesn't feel that way, though. I, I, I think when you're in it, probably it doesn't feel that way to the players either. So, uh, but of that group, I, I think that Washington is probably the most frightening in a single game situation because of the fact that you've got Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook has been playing at a pretty high level for the last couple of months here since he, you know, got healthy and, and more acclimated in Washington. So, you know, I think that's the most dangerous team, even though Toronto obviously has the most playoff experience of any of these teams and is probably the most talented on paper, but the, the weirdness of their season, the situation of being in Tampa the entire year, you know, the statistical projections have kept like, oh, the Raptors are going to make a run. They've got this soft schedule. They've got this talent that's going to they're going to put it together and it keeps not happening. And at some point, I think uh, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that's probably not going to happen. So I, I think Washington is both the most likely and the most dangerous to, to finish 10th. Well, the Raptors now have the hardest remaining schedule in the Eastern Conference, and they have a road trip coming up, a Western Conference road trip that is just absolutely, well, it's not all Western Conference. They have Brooklyn, Denver, Utah, Utah, and the LA teams all on the road coming up. Like, that could be, that could be it. And if I'm Philly and Brooklyn, that's the team I don't want to see. Like, if that team, if the Raptors got healthy and they're starting to get healthy and they played their real team, now they got my boy, Kem Birch, okay? Kem Birch is going to change everything in Toronto. Another Canadian, um... And their playoff experience, as you said, they're tested. They've actually played Embiid better than almost any team in the NBA without Marcus Solna, who was like their alleged Embiid stopper and was. He did a good job on him. But Embiid even came on my podcast last week and said, Toronto's the only team that has figured out really how to get the ball out of my hands. They just don't let me do anything. That's the team I'm like, I'm not sure. I think like a Philly, Toronto, Brooklyn, Toronto, like that. Why can't that could be kind of a fun first round series? I mean, you know, Philly Toronto was something we would have expected in the second round last year, or maybe even the conference finals. And, you know, this Raptors team isn't quite that good. Kim Birch has helped because it seems like he fit puts everything back into the right place. Like Nick Nurse has been so reluctant to start Chris Boucher and just give him starters minutes at center. So Birch gives you an alternative who is not Aaron Baines. Uh, although Chris Boucher, we'll see how long he's out with this MCL sprain. That's, you a, think that's it's a little co- concern. You think it's a coincidence, KP, that the bottom fell out in Orlando the minute they moved Ken Birch? You think that's a coincidence? <laughs> okay. You can, you can hype up all the other trades they made, all the injuries they have. All I know is I can make a statistical argument that Ken Birch trade changed the Orlando Magic season. That's all I'm saying. I'm not going to say anything negative about Ken Birch on this podcast. I know better than to do that. You're damn right. You're damn right you won't. Um, by the way, I think I think Tom Zuller wrote this yesterday. I've said this before. I, I, I think you're on this bandwagon. But I think the number, especially if we're going to use the play-in now to determine seven and eight, I think the top seed should be able to get to pick its first-round opponent because now you're at the mercy of how the play-in shakes out about the, like the team that finishes 10th could finish 8th, the team that finishes 9th could finish 7th. And you're just, I, for, for some reason, that injection of randomness, I think the league should let the number one seed pick their opponent. I don't understand why that's such a hard idea um, to, to come up with. So I think the play-in resolves my biggest issue with the have teams pick their opponent in the first round, which is that, okay, all of a sudden, now it doesn't matter where teams finish between fifth and eighth because you're you're at the mercy of which team calls you out among the top four teams anyway. There's no incentive once you get in that group. Now that you know there's a huge difference between finishing sixth and seventh, that takes away a lot of that issue at the end of no, the No, I meant to be season. clear. I meant I just get to pick out of whoever wins whoever yeah, yeah. wins the two slots in the play in. I just get to pick if I'm the number one seed, I get oh, to I pick see. out of just those two. That's that should be my right. I don't I, I don't get to pick like the five seed or something like that. I just get to pick one of the two play in teams. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And it also deals with another situation that, uh, you know, got brought up recently on the uh, the, the Nerder podcast on The Athletic, which is 
you've got this unusual situation where if you're the one seed now, you have to wait all the way till the end of the play-in to figure out who you're going to play. You're the last team to figure out who you're going to play in the first round. Now, it's a 1-8 matchup, so that lack of relative, relative lack of preparation shouldn't affect you too much, but that is a slight downside to this play-in tournament format. Uh. I, I like to play in. I don't. I mean, I look, we all knew from last season that we were going to be perhaps staring at a scenario like like what happened with Dallas last season. They were the seventh seed by a mile and they're they are the seventh seed. Now there's going to be a good seventh seed that gets roped into a play in tournament. But the gap between seven and eight or six and seven in the West is not going to be all that big. So I don't I don't see any huge issue with it. I still think it's a good idea. I do think it is chipped away at tanking a little bit, and a little bit counts for something, even though you still have clearly Oklahoma City is not trying to win. The Wolves are kind of trying to win, but don't really care. The Pistons, the Magic, they're not really trying to win. The Cavs, I think, will stop trying to win soon. Uh, I think it has chipped away at it, and really that's all I care about. I just want the last month of the season to not be terrible. And now we have all these games, the race for fifth, the race for sixth, rather, um, the race for seven and eight. In, as opposed to nine and ten, as you said, it's a huge difference. There's every game. There's like some little cranny of interest, wrinkle of interest. I like it. Which is exactly what the NBA wanted and envisioned was that we're going to increase the number of points of competition to get into the playoffs because of the fact that teams weren't as worried about you know moving a seed in either direction beforehand. So it's uh, it's it's sort of the inverse of the European uh, soccer super league where everyone was so outraged at the possibility that teams might not have their you know fate in the continental championship decided by where they finish in the league table the nba has moved the opposite direction on that one yeah you'll be shocked to know that there are two sports stories from this week that i just opted out of completely and the first is whatever the hell happened in soccer i don't know but it seemed interesting and the second was whatever in the world happened with lakers twitter which i do not want to get into i don't understand it i read one story about it and I got to the third paragraph and I just was like, you know what? I'm out. I'm parachuting out. I don't get it. I don't want to get it. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't don't risk it click it or ticket paid for by nitsa vivid seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring experience every pitch assist and game winning shot live and in person and the best part each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with vivid seats rewards score unbeatable perks like free tickets surprise seat upgrades ooh, and annual birthday deals as the official ticketing partner of espn Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Let's talk about four to seven in the East, which is just fascinating. A bunch of fascinating teams that have had up and down and up and down, crazy roller coaster seasons. The Knicks, 33 and 27 in fourth is where we're recording this ahead of what I assume is a busy Friday. The Hawks, 32 and 27. I believe they are 18 and 7 in their last 25 games, getting healthy helped. The Celtics, 32 and 27, 12 and 6 in their last 18 games, despite people missing games just like in Atlanta all the time. The Heat, 31 and 28. Victor Oladipo hasn't played since that strange knee injury that he suffered going up for a layup or a dunk or whatever it was. Uh, and they are firmly in seventh now, but that's, of course, the first play-in slot. The four, five, six teams, New York, Atlanta, and Boston, have essentially identical point differentials. It's remarkable how close they are in terms of big-picture metrics. Obviously, it's Knicks mania right now around the world. And, you know, I keep hearing about, you know, I've said before that I would probably pick Brooklyn to win the title if you put a gun to my head and say who's, who's going to win the championship this year. They're tied with Philly. Philly has the tiebreaker for the first seed right now. So Brooklyn is staring at, if they finish second, what has been sort of conceived as like a murderer's row of Miami at seven. Okay, Miami, if Miami wins the play-in. Miami just made the finals. Feels like yesterday. Okay. Um, Milwaukee at three. Milwaukee's just kind of sitting there like, hey, no one's talking about us. 
still still pretty good. Like Drew Holiday is amazing. Big addition to the team. PJ Tucker, they're going to start. They have taken baby steps into it, and I think we're going to see more than. I think we're going to see big steps, big boy steps into the PJ Tucker at center or Giannis at center, however you want to do it, closing lineup. I think we're going to see more of that now that PJ's back from the calf strain. They're just kind of sitting there like, hey, we got the best point differential in the East. No one's talking about us. Fine. Nice win over Philly last night. Yeah, Philly without Simmons, but had everybody else, including George Hill. Uh, and so, so Brooklyn is staring at Miami, Milwaukee, Philly path to the finals. And you've already seen some people declare, if that's the path, they're not making it. It's too hard. It's too many good teams. I'm not. That's an interesting line of thought. We can talk about that. But then, then you start to think, well, why are we pen- penning in Miami at seven when all these teams are so close? And then you start to hear like, well, they could get really lucky and have the Knicks fall to seven. So my my question is, why do we think the the Heat are better than the Knicks? Like, do we? But do you believe in the Knicks now? The, the, the Knicks, I think, are just a good basketball team. I, I think the Heat are better than the Knicks. I don't think that the difference is as dramatic as that conversation, which seemed to be sparked by the fact that the Heat won by, you know, one or two or whatever it was on a last second shot over a Brooklyn team playing without two of its best three players at home. And it's like, okay, well, if that shot hadn't gone in, would this seem like as difficult a path? Because then Miami would again have lost at home to the Nets without two of Brooklyn's three best players. And suddenly it doesn't seem like as formidable a first round matchup. But yeah, I mean, the... The combination of the playoff experience of the Heat, the fact that we've seen them put it together in that moment, the way that they did last year in the bubble and their run to the finals, and the fact that, you know, just coming into the season, the expectations were so dramatically different for Miami and New York. That is something that does have some predictive power, I think, still going into the playoffs. And it's part of what makes this group so interesting that you've got the two teams that met in last year's Eastern Conference Finals battling for to stay out of the play-in, plus, you know, this Knicks team that hasn't been relevant in a very long period of time. Uh, and Atlanta, it's been a few years as well as they've been rebuilding, although the expectations were that they were going to take a step forward and be in the playoffs this year. Still, the fact that the middle of the, the conference has been so much softer than is expected has given even Atlanta a chance to move up a tier from where we thought they were going to be, which is, you know, fighting to be in this play-in mix. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of the murderer's row thing because... In theory, Miami-Milwaukee is a much harder first two rounds than Charlotte-New York. Like, that's, that's, a meaningful, that's a meaningful thing. On the other hand, it's just like, if you think they're the best team, they're the best team. If you think they're the best team, they're going to beat all these other teams. So let me ask you this, because you're one of the more even-handed people who you've looked at all the precedent. You can zoom out. I've been saying all year, every time they ask me on the jump, are you worried that the Nets guys haven't played enough together. Are they this year's Clippers? And I think the last time they asked me this on the jump was like three weeks ago. And I said, no, I'm not. Because to me, the most important thing that has happened this season was Kyrie gave the offense to James Harden and figured out how to remain a superstar in that context. And Kevin Durant is the easy part. He comes in, you ju- he just walks into 30 points. You don't have to run any plays for him. He's fine playing a lot off the ball or being a secondary guy. He's the p- best defensive player on the team, probably. You just, you just fit him in. He fits in. Um, that was three weeks ago. James Harden is now hurt and has been hurt and is going to be hurt for a while. Kevin Durant seems to get hurt every time he comes back. I'm now beginning to get a little bit worried. I've reached a point where we've got 15 games left. I, I, I kind of assumed that we'd get a stretch run here where Brooklyn would get some time. They don't really appear to be getting some time. So I ask you, as someone who thinks a lot about chemistry versus talent and how these variables interact, are you worried? Should we be worried? I'm concerned. I'm probably not worried. I mean, you know, if I guess let me, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase the question. Are you worried because of health? Or are you worried because of chemistry or both? Like, it's one thing to be worried about chemistry. It's another thing to raise the concern of, well, how do we know that these guys are going to be healthy? That's a different thing. Right. I mean, there's always the implicit caveat when we say, you know, when we pick the Nets to win the title, it's assuming everyone is healthy. I mean, I don't know. I guess they potentially could win the championship if they only had two of those three guys. But the odds the odds become a lot longer. If that's, that's why you get case. three, though. That's why you get three. Right, as as you've made that point repeatedly and and accurately, so I I I think you know 
Harden coming back if it's in the playoffs, which it sounds like it's going to be, that's a, a greater challenge to integrate than if you do have a few games at the end of the regular season. So that's a concern. And then, like you mentioned, just kind of the the recurring nature of some of these injuries, you know, calves, hamstrings, those are those are injuries that you tend to have setbacks like Harden did. So that's a little more worrisome than if it's something where it's, you know, more of a cleaner healing timeline basically but you know the same thing is true in the western conference with the lakers and you know i i think we've there's concern there too as well even though anthony davis is now back but we've sort of granted that they're still probably the favorites and i feel that same way about the nets the the chemistry aspect is real but i i tend to be on the same page as you where it's a less important that for this team than it would be for another team because of the fact that they've got so many guys who have figured out already how they fit in around the stars. So as long as the stars figure out how they fit together, which they have anytime they have played together, they're fine. Bruce Brown putting up 21 and 14 the other night. Bruce Brown is going to be, spoiler alert, the captain of this year's Luke Walton All-Stars. Just a fantastic season for the universe. The U's, uh, Bruce Brown. Jeff Green's been great. I don't enough Brooklyn. I don't care about Brooklyn anymore. Um, let's let's frame it around Miami and New York because you just made the argument that Miami to you is qualitatively better than New York, and I get why. They they clearly found an identity in the bubble last year. They're tough. They're proven. They have a stu- a, a, a guy who frankly was a superstar in the bubble and and it still is one. I think in Jimmy Butler. Bam has made a leap as a shot maker. When they have Jimmy and Bam together, they're plus four per 100 possessions. Um, they have, have you know, they only have one lineup the whole season that's played 100 minutes together. So if they ever got healthy, that, that would bode well for them. It's pretty remarkable. But it just doesn't, like last year they hit pause. We all hit pause. And they came back a different team because they made the organizational decision. We're starting Bam at center. Goodbye, Myers Leonard. Jay Crowder, small ball four, all in playing this style. It worked. It was the right move. It was a move a lot of us had been waiting for them to make all season. And it just fit their team together. Jay Crowder left in free agency. And it just feels like they've been struggling to find a cohesive identity ever since that moment. Not to overplay Jay Crowder's importance to the team, although he was important. You know, there's a Rezas here now. He's 36 years old. He's playing the four. The old depot trade was a big deal. Now he's injured. Dragic has been up and down. Hero has been up and down. Iguodala is getting old, though. I think he's been okay for them. It just feels like they, they don't have enough shooting. They take a lot of threes. They're one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league. They're 23rd in offense. Sixth in defense, but 23rd in offense. And they had a, a crazy run where they were, I think, 11-1 over some 12-game span. And since then, they're 9-10. and 10. Um it just feels like they're not going to figure it out. That's that's I I just don't I don't that that clicking I don't see it coming. I just don't. I maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but it's just been a strange season for them. You do you think they still have a I mean they still have those two guys. Those two guys are really really good. Yeah, it feels like every time that you've been like, okay, the Heat have figured it out. Then immediately they take a step back and have a three-game losing streak. And that's and one of those losses is to Minnesota. And that's kind of been, I think, the story of their season. I, I do think there's an element where they've started to get kind of the the filler players out of their rotation. Like Gabe Vincent has been kind of the indicator to me with with all due respect to Gabe Vincent. Like if he's in your rotation, you're not a deep team. And Miami's success is predicated on them both having these two star players and also being very deep uh, in last year's playoff run. But I, I don't want to come up against Jimmy Butler in a playoff series because he's playing as well as he ever has. I mean, despite the time that he's missed due to injury and, and due to the health and safety protocols, you know, he's, he's top 10 in my wins above replacement player in metric. He's like 11th and five thirty eights version of that. So, you know, he's still a guy and, and he's doing that playing 34 minutes a game. And one thing we saw in last year's playoffs is we can take him up from 34 to 37, 38 in a playoff series. And that's big because that's four fewer minutes you're asking from those guys that you mentioned have been up and down all season. And the other thing you know about the Heat is Spo is going to be on point. The coaching staff is going to be on point. They're going to come in with a good game plan. They don't wait till game two. They're going to be with a good game plan in game one, and they're going to have all their adjustments ready for when you adjust. They're, they're, they are going to have... They're not going to be behind because of coaching. Usually they're going to have a coaching edge. Yeah, it's hard. look, Jimmy is 
there's a relentlessness to him and Bam, a physicality, a relentlessness. He's always moving and churning around, cutting, bruising, hitting you. That's just hard to play against. And they're fearless and they're tough. And their defenses remained elite most of the season. They're sixth. So I, I get it. I get why you would argue they're a more formidable playoff opponent than the Knicks. It just feels like they're they're fighting themselves a little too much this year. So let's talk about the Knicks. It really is. I, I, uh, they're thirty three and twenty seven. I mean, and they are now up to nineteenth in offense, which doesn't sound like much, but they're about average over the last two months, which for them is quite good. And they're top. I think they're ninth in April. I mean, it's a small sample, but it's something. The biggest reason is they are shooting forty percent on three in their last thirty four games. That's second in the league to the Clippers. Uh, they're twenty two and twelve in that span. Their offense in that stretch when they're 22 and 12 was 14th overall. Their defense has remained. I mean, look, all year we've been waiting for the regression. They allow a lot of threes, a lot of shots at the rim. The regression has not come. They're still fourth in defense. It's come a teensy tiny bit, but, you know, that's just a teensy tiny bit. They're flying around. They're getting stuff done. Randall is just playing like a star. You know who has the most isolations in the entire NBA? Julius well, Randle. Assume, yeah, was Julius Randle. Now, that's partly because James Harden has been hurt and, and changed his style of play, but Julius Randle has recorded 808 isolations so far, according to Second Spectrum. That's number one in the league. The Knicks are scoring 1.16 points per possession whenever he isolates. That's top 50 out of like 200 guys with some minimum number of isolations. He's been really good. And I I have no... They just look like a really... Like a good team, right? Is there any reason to believe this is a fluke anymore? There's no reason to believe the bottom is going to fall out anymore. And, you know, this is something I, I discussed earlier this week on the Hoop Collective. It was like, if you split their season at the Derrick Rose trade, before the Derrick Rose trade, they had the eighth easiest shot diet in the league for opponents, according to the second spectrum QSQ measure. Since that trade, it's the third hardest. Yeah, like, they've, limit, no they've longer... limited the threes. They, they're, they're not allowing a ton of threes anymore. And I don't know why that's happened other than they've emphasized it, but it's not, a, it's not an issue anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wonder if the coaching staff would tell us, like, look, we had three weeks of training camp to try to put in this entirely new scheme. Of course, we were giving up a lot early in the season, and they were able to survive that because of the fact that opponents missed all those open threes. But now opponents are shooting a reasonable percentage from three over this stretch since the Derrick Rose trade. And yet there's still a top defense during that span. So there, there's no reason to expect the bottom to fall out there. Julius Randle, is he going to shoot 40% from three in the playoffs? I, I don't think I would bet on that, but you know, that's probably the only unsustainable element of what he's doing offensively. Like he's always been a very skilled player in terms of his ability to, you know, shoot and, and handle the ball and pass at his size. So this is not shocking. It's just, you know, remarkable that he's put it together to, at this level at this stage of his career. I think the long twos are almost as remarkable as the as the threes. He's taking 21% of his shots are long twos. That's by far the most of his career, and he's shooting 45%, which is and, – and if you want, I mean, these are like – he's fading away, falling out of bounds with nothing going on, and he's making half of these shots. It's, it's remarkable what he's done. And they're getting – just everyone on their team is defending really hard. Like, if you watch them on the perimeter – they are flying around. They're switching like they're sw- they're they're making these like X out rotations where the perimeter guys toggle assignments based on who drives where, and this guy goes to the corner and that guy takes the corner guys. They're just nailing that stuff time after time. They don't make mistakes, and their effort their effort is just off the charts. And you know the the default is to credit that to Tibbs, right? All oh, Tibbs, he's shouting on the sidelines and and you don't play for Tibbs if you don't play defense but it takes real talent to play that hard and that smart at the same time it's not just flying around for the sake of flying around it's flying around with a purpose and a calculation and it's not guys that you came into this season being like oh they got a bunch of wing stoppers on their team like it's it's guys that were like average below average young guys like RJ Barrett and they're all playing really. I think I think Bullock has been a revelation for them. I, I, Tibbs this this week called him the unsung hero of their team, and I agree with that. His shooting, his defense, his he has a great two man chemistry with Randall as a screener. He screens for Randall a lot and kind of flares out. I, I think 
I just am so impressed with what they've done defensively. I, I could not be more impressed with them, honestly. Yeah, and the other element is, in the case of Barrett and Randall, to play with that energy and play with for the duration that they're playing is two of the guys with the highest minutes totals in the league. Like that's that's a skill in and of itself to have that level of durability. Like we'll we'll see how it works out. They never come out. They never come out of the game. Poor Obi Toppin subs in, gets all excited. Subs is like, let me get warmed up. I'm subbing in for Julius at the four. Two shots go up. He makes one mistake. He's out of the game. Julius Randall's back in. It's it's uh. Their bench unit, by the way, has been the best lineup on the team. Quickly, Rose, Burks, who's been out in the health and safety protocols, uh, Obi and Taj Gibson, they're plus 20 per 100 possessions. The bench unit is, is, is killing teams in the brief, the brief time it gets to play. Um, they are, they are number one in three point percentage allowed, number one in percentage allowed at the rim. And number five in percentage allowed on mid rangers. I mean, they're just, cont- and I, I don't think it's all luck. Because you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of how the Celtics for years and years and years, now it hasn't quite happened this year, held opponents to way lower than expected on three-point shooting. And you would watch them, and it was very clear that A, they had a better understanding than most teams. I know this is going to be controversial in the analytics community, okay? So take it for what it's worth. I think they had a better understanding than most teams of who are the dangerous shooters and who are the not dangerous shooters? And they could remember that a little bit, maybe 5% better, 10%. You're smiling at me, and I don't like your snarky grin, KP. Um, I just, I know the text I'm going to get from Seth Part now. Yeah, well, let him text you, okay? Don't text me. <laughs> um, just a little better. And number two, they had clearly drilled closeouts, like Jalen Brown's pogo stick closeouts, where he jumps with both hands high in the air. He's rushing out. That's what the Knicks are doing. Watch the Knicks close out on shooters. If I were a shooter, and any of their perimeter defenders were coming at me, I would be legitimately unnerved by the ferocity which with with which they are coming at me. They're just they're going to be a pain to play against in the playoffs. Their offense is still kind of meh, but and it's incredibly Randall dependent. But the defense is, you know, it remains elite. There's there's it's been a great story. So people will occasionally credit that Celtics three-point defense specifically to Brad Stevens, but the case is it actually goes back before him to when Doc was the head coach and Tom Thibodeau was his lead assistant. And then those two guys went off to different locations and their defenses didn't have the same kind of three-point effect that the Celtics have had year over year, but they did tend to be near the top of the league. So that does suggest that there's something that they're doing that's more than just like, oh, it's a scoring issue or it's about the, the TD Garden Court or something like that. The leprechauns. Uh, the leprechauns. Leprechauns, yeah. But they also haven't had the same effect. And you know, one of the fascinating things that's happened the last couple of years is we saw this with Frank Vogel last year with the Lakers and now Tibbs this year is – these coaches who have these great defensive track records in one stop go to stop number two, can't replicate it. And then we kind of assume, okay, it, they, they don't have it anymore. The game has changed too much in the case of Tibbs and, and maybe Vogel as well. Or, you know, maybe it was Dan Burke was really masterminding the Pacers defense. And then they go to stop number three and lo and behold, boom, they've got two of the top five defenses in the league again. So I, I don't know what the lesson there is, but there's, there's something. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dialing up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, 
Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. They're playing hard. And you know what? They also nail the fundamentals. Like I call it the low-hanging fruit of the NBA. They're fine. Like they, they, they force turnovers at a decent rate. They don't foul at a horrible rate. They protect the glass at a decent rate. And they're good at that on offense, too. Like, they, they have a pretty good free throw rate, pretty good offensive rebounding rate, pretty careful with the ball. They just play a careful possession game on both ends of the floor. Um, and, and the offense, to me, is the most important wild card for them. They're 29th in assist rate. Portland is last. Portland is last by so much, it's incredible. Now, they're last almost every year. It's not surprising. Um, and they're just they're just very, very dependent on Randall. And his his one on one game, um, and so we'll see sort of how that holds up. But his one on one game, look, he's gotten in better shape, and you've seen a lot of teams now in the last month or so, if they have a really good defensive center who has a little bit of foot speed, will put that guy on Randall to try and take away his post game and his one on one game, and they'll hide their power forward on Nerlens Noel or whoever Todd Gibson, and Julius is now fast enough to take a lot of those centers outside and off the dribble. And a good enough shooter that they have to press on him a little bit, which which invigorates his off the dribble game. So all his skills, all his improvements, kind of coalesce to make him a much more difficult matchup for the bigger guys that are being put on him. It's been it's been great. Um, now, if you so let's let's frame it this way: if you had to pick a team to finish fourth, who would you pick? Boston. Me too. Expl- explain explain why. I mean, as with Miami, this is the team we've been waiting to kind of figure it out all season, but it does feel like they've, in fact, figured it out. They've they've gotten, you know, healthier. Marcus Smart being back in the lineup has been a big deal for them. Uh, you know, they have done this even without Evan Fournier, who's been in the health and safety protocols for a long period of time. And when he comes back, it's going to give them that much more quality wing depth, you know, push Romeo Langford down a spot in the rotation, uh, push Shemi Ojale down a spot in the rotation. So yeah, this I've, had enough, is, I've had enough of Shemi, Shemi Ojale. I, I had hopes. He's a decent three-point shooter. I just, I'm bored. I'm bored of Shemi Ojale. When he comes on the floor, I get bored. I just want to see Grant Williams run around and hit people and play defense more than I want to see Shemi Ojale. Yeah, and he's had some good moments lately. So you mentioned the assist rate for the Knicks. And, you know, I was on this pod on March 1st and Scal, Brian Scalabrini, the Celtics color analyst, was also on that pod lamenting their lack of playmaking and, you know, how poorly they did in terms of assists. So at that point, they were the team that, uh, that was assist 28th in assist rate at 54% of their field goals. Since then, they're up to 59%, which is not great. They're, no one's going to confuse them with the 2014 Spurs, but that's the average. That's good. And that's fine. That's good enough. Yeah, if you've got talent like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Kemba Walker starting to come around, that's good enough. Uh, the Celtics have the second easiest remaining schedule in the East ahead of behind or ahead of, I don't know how to frame that, of the Sixers are the only team with an easier schedule. And uh, if you look, it's actually quite interesting. If you look at basketball reference and the site playoff status, where they sort of predict percentage chance where every team will finish in the East. Like here, the Celtics, they have a 40% chance at fourth. This is basketball reference. 31% at fifth, 20% at sixth. That's like, then they have the the Hawks, 36% fourth, 27% fifth, 24% sixth. The Knicks only 16% fourth, 29% fifth, 29% sixth. That's like a huge level of variability at four, five, six, and the Heat, they have sort of 23% chance, six, 27% chance, seventh. It's going to be kind of a wild race, but I agree with you. The Celtics are, I think, the best of those teams. Time Lord has changed their team. I think it's, it's, it was the right time, no pun intended, to lean into the Time Lord era. Um, that's starting five. So their big four, let's call them Tatum, Brown, Walker, Smart, and Time Lord is going to be a good lineup. And you bring Fournier off the bed. The Evan Fournier era in Boston really is just not really not taken off yet. But you bring him off the bench. You bring Tristan off the bench. You get something out of like the Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, Poo Poo Platt, or whoever else you want to go. Jabari Parker is now involved for some reason and not playing badly, actually. I think they have enough to craft a pretty damn strong eight-man rotation, which is really what you need in the playoffs specifically. I just think qualitatively they're the best of these teams.
the Jabari experiment is kind of fascinating because, you know, they've talked about playing him as a small ball five, which is very different for a guy who came into the league as, you know, maybe a three, four, probably his best position is going to be four. And that's, you know, kind of the evolution of the NBA and and sometimes how players go over the course of their careers while they tend to shift downward on the positional spectrum. And guys, you know, like Jeff Green, who was once a three, four becomes now he's a part time five. Uh, he's playing very hard defensively. Uh, it still seems like he's picking up the Brad Stevens Stevens defense, I would say. Yeah, Jabari playing hard defensively, you really notice it. Like, there's a lot of arms waving around and, like, <laughs> facial gestures and, you know, just, like, effort. The effort is like, I'm trying really hard. I'm trying. Look, oh, my guy just scored. I, I was trying, though. <laughs> um, I just think Boston is 12-6 and six in their last 18 games. They're off. They're plus six per 100 possessions, which is really, really good. Um, and... You know, their their offense, they still don't get to the rim or the line enough, but with better playmaking and better talent, hopefully that changes. And I, I would pick them to finish fourth, which we could get a Boston New York four or five series, which would just be like an old school throwback rivalry series. And then you're either if they get by that series, which again is a big if the way the Knicks are playing, or the Hawks, whoever is in that series, you either get Philly or Brooklyn, and each of those matchups with Boston is just has overflowing with delightful subplots. The Brooklyn trade revenge series the Joel Embiid mashing everything in his path series, the revenge for last year's first round whitewash by Boston, which changed a lot of things in Philadelphia. Um, Let's talk about the Hawks because they're the team. It's not, they're not the team that I have the, uh, uh, it's hardest for me to get a handle on. It's just, they're the team. We've just never seen their team. Like, like Chris Dunn's been hurt the whole year. Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, who was making a leap, have been out for so long. Gallo has barely played. Um, you know, they traded Rondo for Lou Williams. Bogdanovich missed a ton of time. He's back. But they appear to be heading in a direction of just being a really solid team. They're now um, six games over 500. I'm sorry, five games over 500. Ninth in offense, 20th in defense. Not awesome. Uh, plus two net rating. Again, same as Boston. Same as New York, 18 and seven in their last 25 games, plus five in that span, which is really good. And I think most encouragingly, since March for for the season, they are plus four per 100 possessions when Bogdanovich is on the court and Trey Young is on the bench. And since March 1st, they are plus nine per 100 in the Bogdanovich on Trey Young off minutes. And that's that's a big deal to me because, you know, in the past two seasons when Trey Young hit the bench, they were like a D-League team. They couldn't score any points at all, let alone – they couldn't even survive. It was a disaster. They just fell into a sinkhole. Um, they just look like a, a – I mean, I have a lot of questions about what their rotation is going to look like when they're healthy, but they look like a pretty good team. What do you make of them? Yeah, I looked up that exact split that you mentioned with Bogdanovich on the court and Trey Young off since the coaching change, which took place on March 1st. And, you know, if if Lloyd Pierce is somewhere out there lamenting, like, how come I didn't get healthy Bogdan Bogdanovich to try to figure out what had been, as you mentioned, the Hawks' biggest weakness the last couple of years? That that co- combination of him playing with no Trey Young less than a hundred minutes under Lloyd Pierce and wow. it, was, it was active it was actively bad in that period of time they were outscored by nine point five points per hundred possessions it looked like the last couple of years when the Hawks just couldn't score anytime Trey was on the bench you know partially I think because Bogdanovich was dealing you know dealing coming back from those injuries at the the tail end of that and he just wasn't comfortable yet in Atlanta and this is what they. This is why they went out and made a big play for him in restricted free agency is so he could run that second unit in addition to having the ability to play alongside Trey Young because of his spot up shooting. And it's worked out now in the 300 plus minutes we've seen it under Nate McMillan exactly as they intended. They're minus 10 with a Kongwu on the court. And I think the easiest change they can make when they shift into like, let's try to actually win every minute mode is to just play John Collins at backup center and not play a Congo. And that's not to say a Congo is bad. He's actually had some nice defensive games, some nice moments as a rim runner, but he's a rookie and he's been very tentative with the ball. And I think once John Collins is off this minutes restriction, I would expect those minutes, particularly in the playoffs, to go away and for John Collins to be Clint Capella's backup at center. And that is sort of that makes them kind of more rock solid. If they get Hunter back, you know, that would be very interesting. Hunter and Reddish. Um, you know. And it would also, like, they're playing Trey Young and Lou Williams together here and there. 
I, that's not going to work in the playoffs. That is um, that is cannon fodder on defense. You are just turning yourself into cannon fodder on defense. So that's not going to work. And the more perimeter depth, the more they can minimize that. But is there any red flag about this team? Is there anything you look at when you look at their defensive metrics, um, their shot selection? Is there anything that's like there's a weak spot here to pick on? I don't think there's a red flag. I mean, I, I don't know that the shooting that they've had since the coaching change is sustainable. You mentioned New York's shooting 40% over an extended period of time. Atlanta is right behind them. Since the coaching change, they're at 39%, which is third in the league. And, and Tony Snell in that period of time has hit 61% of his three-pointers, which I'm going to take the under on that. Tony Snell, Tony Snell and Moses Brown, this is deep cut Moses Brown, are the captains of my they look six inches taller than they actually are team. Tony Snell looks like he's 7-1. Moses Brown who's the current starting center for the Oklahoma City Thunder for the millions of people who are not watching the Oklahoma City Thunder right now. He looks like Paul Bunyan. He, he, he's like, he looks like he's eight feet. I don't know if it's the kind of shorts he wears. He looks like he's eight feet tall. I don't understand. Okongu is somehow the opposite of that effect, where he looks shorter than he is when he's out there with NBA players, which is odd because I saw him play in person last year at when he came to play at UW, but somehow I didn't pick up that until I saw him in an NBA court. I don't know why, but oh, t- Tony Snell. Yeah, Tony Snell's shooting. I think he leads the league in three-point percentage still if he has if he qualifies for the minimum amount of attempts. My question is, so like defensively, they're pretty good when Capella's on the floor. So, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, Trey's a weak spot defensively, but they can, they, they have enough decent defenders. Like they shouldn't be bad on that end. And they're about average. I mean, it's 20th sounds bad. They're basically average. Uh, and Capella has just been, outstanding for them what do you make what do you make of trey Young's season it's been a it's been a very weird trey young season in a lot of ways what what sticks out to you yeah i mean i think it's kind of like you had this position on trey young coming out of last season and there were still a lot of questions to answer about him and i feel like those questions still exist even though he's on a good team and part of it is i, I think we'll learn a lot about him in the playoffs because you know, you mentioned him defensively. We haven't seen him in a situation where teams are game planning for Trey Young and what can we do both offensively to make his life difficult by taking the ball out of his hands and forcing him to be active without it and go get the ball back. And then defensively, how can we target him and take advantage of him at that end? And that, you know, going back to when he was in the draft process coming out of Oklahoma, like I, I thought he was being slept on a little bit where he was, he was, you know, to be behind some of the centers he was behind, including, uh, uh our, our old friend Mo Bamba, who, uh, has taken Ken Birch's minutes in Orlando. But, you know, there was also this question of if everything works out for Trey Young, is there a limit on how good he can potentially be just because of his sheer lack of size? I'm most interested in the fact that he took nine and a half threes a game last year. And he's taking six and a half threes a game this year. That's a big drop and a big change. And I think the way the defenses are guarding him accounts for some of that. I think he's fallen head over heels in love with his floater, which is, I, and, and I, but his floater is also like a pass to Capella. So I don't really mind it so much because a Capella, if you watch Capella play, if you, you don't even have to blitz Trey Young. If his guy, steps up to contain Trey Young, Clint Capella rolls to the rim and he has inside position and he is not giving up inside position. So when Trey Young shoots that floater, he's just sitting there waiting for the offensive rebound. He obviously leads the league in every rebounding stat, but it, Trey, I, the, the, the decline in threes, it's just something I'm, I, whenever I watch the Hawks, I try to figure out why that's happening and whether it's a problem. What's your take? I mean, I think a lot of the extra threes, like his percentage hasn't gone up this season. He's still at 36%, but it feels like a lot of those extra threes were threes he kind of, you know, was just uh, taking for to justify the threat of the defense to the defense of him taking a 30 footer. And I think a difference between him and Dame Lillard and Steph Curry, I mean, there's, there's a few differences between them is like those guys still hit the 30 percenters at a high enough percentage that it's valuable both as a shot and for the way it warps a defense. I don't think in Trey Young's case, those are valuable as shots. And what you mentioned about his defense in the playoffs, I mean, that's what we've all been waiting to see, sort of. It's like when these, when these little guards get into the playoffs, it's what happened to Kemba Walker, who's a much better defender than, and more willing defender than Trey Young. Um, what happens to them? And that's why Hunter 
for them has been so important because he was the one you just whoever is the most dangerous player point guard wing whatever hunter guard him and and it was having a great season they don't really have that without Dunn and hunter and too much i don't think reddish is really ready for that kind of role though he has the tools for it uh kevin herter solid kevin herter is an underrated player by the way he's just a good basketball player but he's not really cut out for that job either Right. Yeah. It's, you know, everyone has to slide up a spot without Hunter there in the lineup. And he was playing at such a high level early in the season. that It's a bummer that whatever is going on with his knee post-surgery remains an issue. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you. Let's pick another team to talk about. Charlotte, Indiana, Chicago. Chicago is kind of boring because they don't have Levine right now. So they're predictably struggling. Toronto, we already talked about. Washington. Who's interesting of that group too? Charlotte's kind of holding it together with super glue and scotch tape right now without so many guys i i don't know if they are holding it together last night they did not look like they were holding it together i mean you're, you're three and seven without hayward now those three wins coming against the aforementioned oklahoma city thunder not trying to win milwaukee when they sat every single starter and then portland without damian lillard which still was probably a pretty the most impressive i think of these and wins by the way they, and their lot their loss last night in chicago was just such a classic, like, late-season Eastern Conference playoff implications between the 28 and 30 Charlotte Hornets and the 25 and 34 Chicago Bulls. Can you feel the tension? The stakes are enormous. Two sub-500 teams battling for an, an actual playoff spot. But, you know, Lamelo and, and Gordon Hayward, it seems like they're going to be able to get both of those guys back before the, the playoffs or before, in their case, almost certainly the play-in. And at that point, they become a much more formidable opponent. They are, Charlotte is 12th in offense and oh, 16th in defense. I have no idea how that's even possible on either end of the floor. <laughs> um, and they're really, they're minus two per 100 possessions, minus 1.7. So they're significantly worse in scoring margin, but they have an absolutely absurd record in close games, 16 and eight in games within five points in the last five minutes, 13 and six in three, three points, three minutes games, mostly thanks to Terry Rozier hitting every, every shot. They have interesting Charlotte Hornets stat. And again, this goes to the scotch tape. I don't know, duct tape, whatever tape is flimsy. Scotch tape is flimsier than duct tape. Their defense, which again is average, they have, if you just looked at, if you estimated what their field goal percentage allow would be based on the location of every shot they allow, they are dead last. They allow the worst shot diet in the entire league in terms of threes and rim, but somehow they're surviving and they play zone, they switch, they play the shot, they switch in like horrible matchups. They put Devontae Graham on Vucevic and all this stuff last night and they're kind of just playing the shot clock, right? We're going to front and help and make you pass the ball around and hopefully the shot clock will be toward the end. I don't know how they're doing it, but they're hanging in somehow. I don't know. I wonder if the zone becomes a weapon for them in this unusual, you know, one and done play in tournament format. Like it's kind of like playing Syracuse in the NCAA tournament. Like they're not as much of an outlier compared to the rest of the league as a team like Syracuse is in college basketball. But it's like, ah, you know, here comes this kind of defense that we haven't really prepared for if they just kind of go all in on it in the playoffs. Yeah, interesting. Three of the teams we've mentioned today, Miami, Charlotte and the Raptors allow the most three point shots in the league um uh among uh among all teams and so it's it's you have mentioned this before that we had this trend of teams allowing a lot of threes and playing elite defense and that's sort of dissipated a little bit this year but Miami's defense has rebounded in Toronto when they have their guys is still a, a pretty good defensive team and Milwaukee was kind of an example of this early in the season where they were giving up a ton is they always do a ton of threes and their defense wasn't as good as it had been in the past. But now they've kind of made steps back towards what we what we saw from them in past seasons. So the the effect does not seem to be as extreme anymore. This is just a really fun four to twelve grouping in the East. Knicks, Hawks, Celtics, Heat, Hornets, Pacers, Wizards, Bulls, Raptors in order. It's just I, like the Raptors. It just kind of seemed their season was over. And then. Like Utah Watanabe has a game and Freddie Gillespie comes up and like starts doing stuff. And all of a sudden Kyle Lowry's like, I got to play. I got to suit up and play. We're in the play-in. We're in the play-in race. It would be kind of a, 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 I mean, and then, you know, they start getting healthy. I mean, I, why not? Other than their schedule, which is brutal. I mean, they're, they're, they have made for a nice little stretch run here as Cleveland, Orlando, and Detroit have, have fallen on the wayside. But it's nice to kind of have the Raptors back. 
For sure. And also, you know, the unusual number of rest games where guys, even in non-back-to-back situations, I think were sometimes city. I think Kyle Lowry had three games in a row where he rested, which you don't usually see outside of Al Horford in Oklahoma City before we des- they decided to just like, let's give up this charade and actually just sit him the rest of the season. So that made me wonder like how serious they were about this season. But maybe at some point they see, you know, the carrot of the play-in is a, a way in for them. I just wonder if any of these teams, if we if we get a if if six, seven, and eight, if any of them have a little bit of a puncher's chance to at least make the first round competitive. I think that that would be it's I think it's possible for Toronto and Boston. I think Atlanta, I mean, all these teams are kind of interesting. Charlotte and Indiana to me are the are the weaker links given Indiana's health issues with Miles Turner out. I mean, we talked about, you know, Brooklyn facing Miami in the first round. How about if you're Milwaukee and you draw Miami in the first round? That can't feel real good after last season. No, no, that would not. Or maybe, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, Cathartic. maybe, maybe yeah, face, let's face the ghosts. Let's get it. Let's get it out of the way. We're confident. We're a different team. I'll tell you, I think Drew Holiday in typical Drew Holiday fashion has had the best under the radar season in the NBA. He has been outstanding for the Bucs and every facet of the game. I think he's been their second best player by a non-trivial amount over Middleton and who's also been very good. I think Drew Holiday has been everything they hope for and more. It's so odd where there's the situation is, you know, they're clearly dramatically less good than they were in the regular season the last two years, last year in particular. And yet I still feel about better about their playoff chances in some ways because of the fact that they've got Drew there and he's just such a difference as compared to when they had Eric Bledsoe in that spot the last couple of years. So, you know, I still don't, I, I there's still not my pick to come out of the Eastern conference because particularly if they get stuck in third, that's going to be such a difficult path to have to beat bro- both Brooklyn and Philadelphia without home court advantage. But one of the big questions is what will home court advantage look like in the playoffs? Because, you know, this is something I've been tracking and it was kind of going up over the course of the year as more teams were allowing fans in limited capacities into arenas. And then in April, it's cratered where teams have played better on the road than they have at home. So that might be a fluke. I don't know if that's just, you know, the novelty of having 3000 fans in some arenas and none in others is wearing off, but it's, that's something I'm really curious to say. Um, it, that's a, that's a great point. I, I sort of the home court thing is you, it's sort of now you see, you hear fans now you see more fans more arenas have fans you think maybe maybe it's going to be something like the advantage that that it used to be. I agree with you on the Bucks. I, they won't be my pick to win the East, and I can't even explain why. There's just something nagging me about their team. <clears throat> like they've clearly changed some fundamental things about themselves, right? Giannis is screening more, which is something all of us wanted. There's less, many fewer of their possessions. Our Giannis pounds the ball at the top of the arc and tries to run through a wall, which is the thing that's not going to work against the best teams in the playoffs. And many more are, oh, that was an interesting Drew Holiday Giannis pick and roll with Brooke Lopez in the corner and PJ Tucker in the other corner. Oh, that's kind of fun. Um, They're switching more on defense. And and I think with a little more selectivity in the last couple of weeks, there's just something I can't even explain it. There's something nagging at me. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's they're trying to change too much too quickly, even though that's what we've asked them to do for the last two or three years or hope to see from them. I don't, there's just something, something that this, this, I would love to see this stretch run to get a little more of like the holiday Middleton, Giannis, Tucker, DiVincenzo or Connaughton or whoever you pick as the fifth guy in that group. I'd like to see that get a little run and see what it looks like. Yeah, that would be good to see. I I think the fundamental issue is, and we won't really get a feel for this in their last two matchups, which do give Milwaukee the chance to move up in the standings. I should acknowledge that after talking about the path. They're only they're only two games out. I mean, that's that's again, we just not talking about them. They're only two games out in the loss column. I mean, partially because they've just had you know. the, who do they lose to at home on Saturday night? Some some team they should not have lost to. And it's like they had an opportunity. Brooklyn lost the next day and they didn't make up any ground. But they've got one more against Philly at home and then two more coming against a weakened Brooklyn squad at home. So there is still a chance for them to pass those teams. And But the, as I project forward to the playoffs, if it's a Bucks nets matchup, what we've seen is that Brooklyn's switching ability, and especially if Milwaukee is going to be switching too, that turns everything into a one-on-one battle. And which guys would you rather have in a one-on-one battle? Durant, Harden, Irving versus Giannis, 
uh, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday. I, I think the choice is, is pretty clearly on the Nets side. So, you know, there's got to be some sort of uh, strategic or, or, or depth or chemistry advantage that favors the Bucks in that matchup that I'm not sure I see at this point. Agreed. All right, KP. I love the Eastern Conference. It does. It's 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 always a it's always a boondoggle. Fun to fun to analyze. Uh, thank you for your time. You can read what are, what are you, what are we looking for? We got a mailbag coming up tomorrow. We got what what do you, we got? What else we got? We got a mailbag coming up tomorrow where I'm going to talk about uh, one of your all time favorite players, Diana Taurasi. You know, I had a conversation about D yesterday, and I said to someone, she's one of my five favorite athletes of all time and this person said five favorite female athletes right i said no <laughs> just just five favorite athletes like that's it i mean uh well I, now i'm that that now i'm beside myself with excitement for the for the <laughs> mailbag so there's gonna be a diana tarasi mailbag and you and mike schmitz did a great job this week looking at rookies and second year guys projecting them forward that's always very very smart uh reading kp thank you for your time thanks for having me 